0: Welcome. No, no you I like start. It. I did. Welcome to Church and Other Drugs. My name is Ayo. Jed. We got I'm a str- a stranger. What's your name?
1: What's up, bitches? I know y'all miss me. You guys have been blowing up my Insta and shit. I appreciate that. All the love. By that, you that's mean, a lie. Nobody's done by that.
0: that. You mean Scott Countryman's been blowing up your Insta?
1: Scott. Scott. That's right. Scott. That's right. Scott
0: he- said. Uh, wait, Scott said that he had to. He was live texting me uh apparently he was having a debate in his kitchen where the kitchen staff was convinced that scott uh had um man love for me and he was trying to convince them that i was married and that it's not true oh
1: i thought it was he was gonna say genital herpes which are but bo- with our which are both true turns out
0: listen the doctor said it's just uh cellulitis all right it's a different thing <laughs> Doctor uh, told me. Um so Super Bowl, uh massive tank and ratings. Good job. Dude, it yes. was horrible. Yes.
1: It was awful. Did you watch it? Uh you guys all boycotted, right? I saw uh, that I saw that all Saints fans were gonna go do like procession parades. Yeah, they did a parties massive, and stuff. Uh what are those called? Second line? Second line parade. Right? Yep. Second um, line.
0: Yeah, it like sold out in like real quick. Uh, I know, I saw that. It's awesome. The bars in New Orleans weren't even showing. Like nobody was playing it. That's great. Yeah. I think some uh, people actually played the Super Bowl that the Saints won.
1: (laughs) That's awesome. I was bored to fucking tears watching that Super Bowl. It was so bad. B T dubs. It was the best part the best part was Big Boy at the halftime show. Oh, the halftime. Hands well, down.
0: And so, have you seen how the internet's furious now too about the halftime oh, show? Aren't they always? Well, but okay. So, did you hear leading up? Um, so the because
1: Levine showed his nip nips. Is that no, what it is?
0: No. Oh. So the SpongeBob creator died this year. Okay. And so the internet lobbied to um, have a a song from one of the penultimate spongebob episodes played during the halftime show and oh, maroon gosh. 5 like kind of like, like nah no 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 they were like okay yeah we it was heavily implied that they were gonna do it and it did you notice they played that clip
1: well spongebob clip? oh okay during the halftime show
0: and it was the beginning of the song so everyone's like holy fuck they're actually doing it and then uh-huh. they did not. Then they went into sicko mode, and everyone's so mad that they even would, like, troll them like that.
1: That's incredible. I'm yeah. so happy that they did, and it makes all of that much more worth it to me. Also, sicko mode was sicko. <laughs> it was so bad. Dude, Adam
0: Levine, though, your boy is ripped.
1: I know. I thought he was, like, when he had the, the uh, like, wife beater on, I was like, Ooh, Levine's gained a little weight, dude. And then he ripped it off, and I was like, no, that's just all muscle. That
0: is. He is thick. He is thick. <laughs> yeah, boy's thick, dude. Jeez. I would. I My takeaway was that I didn't appreciate the halftime show making me question my sexuality. That's not what I signed <laughs> up for, dude.
1: First yeah, NFL's. Dude, I would. There's no questioning here. I would. You know yeah, what I'm saying?
0: absolutely. Once again, you know, if Kaylee slept with him, I'd be like, how was it?
1: Can I see the video? Can I yeah, see the video? Totally. Yeah. What? Right. One
0: hundred. It's not a question if he was better than me. Just how much better?
1: <laughs> <laughs> also, can you give me tips? Yes. And can, can he? <laughs> Did give you me? take notes? Oh, jeez. Um.
0: Yeah. So that was cool. You know, screw the NFL. Hopefully, they learned from that. It was just bad. And then they talked the about NFL's
1: dumb, dude.
0: Yeah. Well. It's so funny that I'd be singing a completely different tune if just the Saints were there. Well, it's like, it would have been a better game, too. It would have been a way better
1: game. That was just so bad, dude. I mean, I think. uh, Yeah, you never know. The Patriots' defense is so good, dude. Nobody wants a a
0: defensive
1: game, dude. It's just so, it's like a defensive MMA fight. It's
0: so boring.
1: (laughs) I like it when it's my team, like so the college we're getting really down the sports ball rabbit hole, but college ball the s e c is oftentimes just huge defensive battles and i like I'd like that, but it's my team, you know what I mean when yeah. I'm talking about the Super Bowl, which is supposed to be like the big one of the biggest entertainment nights in american in the American calendar it was just boring as fuck so so it started and this will kind of move
0: away from from sports ball but it, it it i so it started a conversation last night and i don't know if it's just that aesthetically things are changing but it seems to me that more so than ever um we like entertainment is turning into this like technicolor like fucking like look at me look at me distract don't think about like, you know, the Hunger Games style or like V for Vendetta, that show just very much like it's just getting so ridiculous, like so over the top, in your face. And so then I was like, well, is it just like aesthetically? Is it just like TVs or HD and so colors are just, you know, everyone's on like a color kick now? I don't know. Does that make any Yeah. Sense?
1: Yeah, I feel like they've been putting on big productions and stuff like that for shows for a long time.
0: Even on like like, have you watched like the Gong Show or even on like date like uh like network television like game shows? Oh, it's just getting yeah. More, I don't watch TV. Like a weird alternate reality of like
1: what's weird to me and Black Mirror has hit on this a bunch, but like it's all like all the game shows of like World's Best Talent, Blah Blah Blah, Singer, Singer, Deathmatch, Match or whatever. I yes. just. I can't, dude. Yeah, it's it's, it's entirely too much for me. It's so weird. It is weird. We're weird. Like, humans are just weird, dude. We are. We are. Yeah.
0: Our time is done.
1: For sure. Uh, like, we'd need another asteroid ASAP. Yeah. The age of the penguins has come. <laughs> the age, age of the lizard people. They've already taken office. They have.
0: Uh, yeah. yeah, oh, the best tweet of the night was both teams are playing like they know the winner goes to the White House.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So that was good.
0: Uh, They're all
1: excited about their fast food reception at the White House. Their
0: McNuggets.
1: Jeez.
0: I got paranoid and did my taxes last night because I'm afraid the government's going to shut down again on the 14th.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm waiting on like one or two more things. But... Europe how much do you oh yo you're not a 1099 anymore nope you getting them uh what are you buying with your refund check and we
0: are you know what you want to know something funny our refund is the exact amount of our credit card bills
1: oh that's incredible
0: so we're gonna pay that off
1: you hype dog yeah yep well I mean it's like yay oh yay. (laughs) oh That's that's adulthood just in a nutshell. Yeah, oh, fuck.
0: Yeah, totally. But it, I mean, <laughs> I guess with with credit cards, at least it's like uh, it's almost like you have an emergency account. Once it's paid off, it so is. It's, it's better than just yeah. like literally throwing money away.
1: Right. Uh, you know, okay. you know what's so – you're going to feel so lame when this happens, but you're going to feel this huge feeling of relief and just ec- ecstatic awesomeness when you pay those off.
0: Yeah. I'm, and I'm,
1: you're going to hate yourself for it. You're yeah. like, this is, is this what my life has come to? Did I feel this great when I pay off my credit card? Uh, and the answer is yes.
0: Because we used to be so – I guess maybe we are just young, but we were, you know, we were raging against the machine. <laughs> Fuck the man, dude. And now. And
1: spontaneous and, like, all that stuff. And now my friends are like, hey, I'll buy your ticket to Bonnaroo. And I'm like, sorry, bro. Can't. I got a PTA meeting <laughs> or whatever. i you know? have to bring my laptop to do a 401k meeting on the second day. That's, Is that possible? That's re- that's right. How's their Wi Fi? From one to ten. How's their Wi Fi?
0: Yeah. I've got I've got a big uh budget budget meeting, big budget meeting in between uh in, <laughs> in between uh modest mouse and modest Yahoo. I'm gonna have to balance some spreadsheets.
1: That's right, in between. <laughs> That's yeah. right. That's Jeez right. Sorry, shit. bro, can't
0: Yeah, no can't do, son. Uh Sucks. so did you listen to our boys uh Dopey on This American Life?
1: Not yet. It just dropped last night, right? On yeah. the on the interwebs. Yes. Now I'm going to today though. I hear it's really sad. Which it is. which it's makes really me sad. not want to listen to it. But. It's,
0: it's really good. Well, you know how and I just uh I talked to Dave about it this morning. You know how um this American life and NPR in uh, general, usually they kinda have that like somber like and this, duh, this is
1: what happens. This is irreglass. This is NPR. Chapter Bobby. one. Chapter one:
0: Depression. Chapter two: <laughs> Suicidal tendencies. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> yeah. It, it was like kind of that. Like it, it was it was right, somber. Right, right, right. Um, it was really good though, and it it was really good. It really rekindled my my worry for Brad. I'm really not liking the parallels.
1: Oh uh, yeah, that shit's. I haven't talked well. to him in like
0: three weeks man And I finally suckered in And like I started trying to call him And he's just not answering And then I I'd, I'd messaged his wife And she said that he's sick right now And I was like okay mm. Whatever
1: Yeah So
0: It sucks, it sucks dude yeah, It does. It's
1: hard It's really hard watching people um, Struggle with addiction Especially knowing like That the dope on the streets is just killing everybody it's yeah. really, really
0: hard, and it's. I feel like something's been stolen from me because it's like I've finally got him back, and like literally, it went from him calling me at least once a day for over a year and a half to nothing. Mm-hmm. And even when I talk mm-hmm. to him, it's completely different. And it's like it's that's uh, the eeriest thing. It sucks.
1: It just it sucks. sucks. Yeah, yeah. I've done it. It's awful. It's the absolute worst. Yep. But you know what? We don't have any control over that, and all we can do is keep the lights on and help the people that are coming in to twelve-step programs and wanting help, right?
0: Man, but I don't like those people.
1: Man, fuck all them. <laughs> I know, dude. Dude, I got six guys now. Yeah, ego it's much. Stupid. No, it's stupid. I can't say no yeah my sponsor so told me out, i can't say no no my sponsor told me i can't say no
0: Oh, okay well so but dude past six at some point you're doing them a disservice if you can't split your time correct no
1: 100 but like honest so the last guy you can do six. hasn't called me in the last four days so like that's right. how that goes too yes. like as soon as they come they come they go as easily as they come absolutely absolutely
0: <laughs> so that's that, that part, is that's cool. a big part of it It is cool that you're, you're potentially building, you know, you could potentially build up a lineage type thing that could span a while.
1: Yeah. So what's been really neat is that my wife is now sponsoring five women and we have monthly sponsorship dinners where it's all of her sponsees and my sponsees. And we have this like group thread text message. And it's just incre- like the your, community that's popped up has been really cool.
0: Your your wife is sponsoring five women.
1: Yeah. Wow. I know. Isn't that crazy? She that hated is it. crazy. She hated 12-step programs saying, like dude. last year. Yeah. No, I know. Holy I shit. I know. It's, cra- it's interesting how God works like that. Like yeah. she, got in, she got a sponsor. She worked the steps again and like she's happy and healthy. And then God's just like, okay, now that you're good, here are all of these people. Here's all this work that you can do. That's crazy. I mean, it's her. really interesting.
0: Kaylee yeah. Ain't, it's ain't, super ain't doing interesting
1: yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I mean, you know, it took what it took. She, she almost drank. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, and she doesn't mind me saying that, but yeah, no, I'm she was sure very close that. to drinking. So, yeah. Well, that's
0: pretty cool. I mean, that's, yeah, I guess that's it. Once again, it follows the, the, what everybody else says happens. It's like, you'll get to that point and either you'll go back out or you'll double down and, mm-hmm so yep makes that's sense. the truth yeah i mean that's you're not truth. you're not gonna stay miserable no <laughs> like, no we don't like no that. hell no hell's no. no. um let's uh get to this interview real quick with in Lowell LaGreder, Um, from taylor made retreat center in oregon this is one of uh
1: he's connor's cousin
0: he is actually he he trained him I he so. trained him up he trained uh, connor and, uh, Interesting. We'll get the scoop on the next fight against uh, Money Mayweather. Oh, um, yeah, I thought was gonna
1: fight John Jones. He's fighting Jones, in, right? Is he? I don't know. I just he's, made that up. Oh, that'd
0: be great. He'd get fucking wrecked. He'd get thrashed. he would get wrecked. Jones is the yeah. truth, even though he can't stay off them drugs.
1: <laughs> I know. <Jeez. laughs>
0: but it was such a sick burn that, like, when he beat DC, he was like because dc was like clowning on him for like being hung over and it's like and i still beat your ass and it's like
1: ooh, yeah that's right
0: Ouch. You fucked him up uh but yeah but now on to you know recovery
1: yeah oh. a bad person, you don't like me, well I guess I'll make my own way, it's a circle, a mean cycle, I can't excite you anymore, where's your gavel, your jury, what's my offense this time, you're not a judge but if you're gonna judge me, well sentence me to another life.
2: my phone off so it doesn't go off while we're talking.
0: Yeah, so how did you... uh, So you know Maddie then? Yeah, Maddie, apparently she had been somewhere where I was
2: speaking because she was in my phone, but a friend of hers took a tour through our retreat. We got a spiritual retreat on Four and a Half Acres and told her, she just started her Reiki practice, told her it was something she might want to be involved in. So she came in guns a blazing and uh, has uh, gotten involved on a level i could never have imagined and it's just amazing
0: right and so um yeah so this is a uh, lowell mcgregor um yeah lowell thanks for coming on yeah uh, i got hooked up with you from maddie like we were just talking about um yeah and so you're coming from beaverton oregon is that right beaverton oregon right outside of
2: beautiful portland oregon where are you, eight minutes from down.
0: where are you from
2: I was born in the Pacific Northwest. I was born in Seattle, raised in the Seattle area. Moved to New Jersey for a couple of years, and spent most of my time in Portland. I toured all over the world with bands, and that landed me in New York for about a year. But I'm a I'm a Northwest guy.
0: Oh, nice. Well, let's. I guess that's a good enough segue. So, um, yeah, I want to hear your story, and then um, towards the end, I want to hear about your the newest uh, venture that Maddie got involved with as well. But yeah, so. Take it from wherever you want to start. Uh, what would you like to hear about? Uh, how, well, you know, what you used to do, what happened, and uh, where you at now?
2: Copy that. Well, I uh, started drinking uh, at uh, about probably twelve, thirteen. 13. Uh, my first uh, episode with alcohol, I was actually, uh, a citizen's arrest was made against me by a junior sheriff that had lived next door to my friend. Uh, a little small fire. I put it out by myself. I thought it was pretty funny, but he didn't, and uh, that's he had a, me taken home by the police.
0: That's a real thing? I thought that was just, <laughs> like, made up. No, nah,
2: no. Nah, it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not going to share my opinions about it, but yeah, it was a real thing. And he uh, uh, called the cops and had me taken home, and I, I think the cop was kind of sheepish about it, and you know, I don't know that he knew I was drinking, but uh, he dropped me off and, and turned me back over to my parents and said, tell them to quit lighting fires. A habit that didn't get broken at that point, nor did my drinking habit get broken at that point.
0: So what? Uh, so that was your first running brush with the uh, the long hand of the law. Um, yeah, was one of the
2: early brushes. I was 10 years old, so geez. I hadn't had a whole lot of interaction with the police at that point. I, I changed that and later had much more interaction.
0: So when was your first? uh, When did you fall in love with uh, with drugs or drinking? Which was more your thing? It was.
2: I was a bottomless pit of excess. That was a comment that came from one of my uh, partying pals, and uh, that kind of was a wake up call because I thought I was partying just like everybody else. And he'd mentioned to some other friends that I was a bottomless pit of excess. My drug of choice was more. Whatever I was doing, I wanted more of it.
0: What was what was what was probably the first thing you did that you were like, oh, wow, I want to do, I want to feel this way. You know, I don't know.
2: A lot of people say the first time they took a drink or they took a hit of anything, they just, you know, their shoulders slumped, they relaxed, they felt like they were a part of life at last. I don't know that I had an epiphanal moment like that. You know, I just started, I started drinking, I started smoking pot, it became kind of a daily thing. I didn't fit in anywhere. I moved from New Jersey to the, the Beaverton area where I'm living now. So it's kind of weird to be back here. But, you know, I moved in and I couldn't fit in. I didn't know how to, to relate to people. Uh, I tried to lie about who I was and make myself sound like a big shot because I was insecure. And, you know, just felt alienated. I alienated myself. I didn't realize that until I did a fifth step. But, you know, I felt alienated. And the only people I could fit in with were the stoners and people that were drinking and smoking pot. So that's just what I did. Um, it, was, it was a function of survival more than it was, you know, relaxing and becoming a part of the human race. Does that make sense?
0: Oh, it makes perfect sense. Did you? Do you? What were your parents like? Do you have any siblings? What was the fan? What was going on with the family? The
2: family was fine. You know, I was. It's a middle class family. My dad worked for the phone company. My mom was a stay at home mom. Neither one of them drank or used. I was adopted at birth, so uh, the uh, the fact that I didn't feel a part of that family was probably not. Uh, particular, particularly uh, uncommon because I didn't, I wasn't genetically connected. I went back when I was pregnant with my daughter, I went back and found my, my birth family and they're first generation Irish, all of them hardcore alcoholic. My birth mother liquefied her intestinal, her, her uh, organs with alcohol and, and ended up dying at a very young age. So, uh, and I met a couple of my uncles and they were both alcoholics. One was actually in recovery. And there was a massive family history. And that's really all I knew. My parents were open about my adoption. And the only thing that they ever told me was that I needed to be careful with alcohol because there was a history of alcoholism in my birth family. And I had three siblings that were uh, tortured by my disease. You know, I started drinking early and I was running away and I was being arrested and I was... You know, on one particular, I believe it was Father's Day, my dad came home from work and announced to the family at dinner what Lowell gave me a Father's Day present, he's in jail. At 14, I was locked wow. up in hall and, and uh, facing the rest of my adolescence in jail. So, so that... My normal family and, and, you know, no, there were no precursors to, to my disease. I was uh, anomalous in, in my drinking and using.
0: So this, this is actually kind of interesting because you're um, so I work with adolescents and I, and I was in treatment when I was an adolescent as well. And the question I always ask myself, and I'm curious for you too do you think there was a course of action that could have been taken early that would have either like mitigated some harm or completely changed your life? Or do you think there was just nothing that could have been done?
2: I'm not sure because, you know, I can't go back and recreate it, but much like what you're doing, my fantasy, even when I was drinking and using, was if I had been doing anything other than what I was doing, uh, I would have been working with with youth because I would like to believe that I would be able to have an impact being able to share my story like what you've done, you know, that could reach in and, and give some hope to a kid that was hopeless. You know, even when I was drinking, I wanted to do Big Brothers. I wasn't responsible enough to follow through on it. I got approved, but didn't follow through. And uh, I've always had a passion for for trying to find out whether or not I could make a difference. But, you know, for me, I was intervened on uh, by a group called Youth Contact, which gave me a bunch of really useful communication skills. They helped me to build a little bit of self confidence, but it didn't mitigate my alcohol and drug use. They addressed the symptoms of my disease, but they didn't under, understand, I don't think, the uh, underlying causes and conditions. So those never got addressed. I kept drinking and using and using that as as my ultimate uh, escape tool, being able to deal with my life, whereas they were thinking if they could just get me some counseling and help me to feel better, everything would be okay. And uh, if perhaps if I had been introduced to principles of the program at that time I could have changed the trajectory or or I could have surrendered to allow that change to take place but I don't know you know it's really tough to say if I would have been at a place where I was willing to surrender at that young an age you know I certainly didn't believe I had a problem I thought everybody else had a problem
0: yeah totally totally so when did uh when did things start kicking into a higher gear
2: well I went for I was at the time I was uh, arrested I was selling pot. My parents found, even when I was in youth contact, they found, uh, large amounts of marijuana in my footlocker. And back then it was a felony. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of progressed through the ranks of, of various drugs and was introduced at some point to cocaine. And I loved smoking cocaine. I loved it to the point where I would smoke it until my lungs stopped working. And, uh, just kind of spiraled out of control. Became uh, intimately connected with those four hideous horsemen. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair.
0: Yeah, and this was this was pre-crack, and this was in the freebase days. Yeah,
2: it's kind of like you know your dad telling you he had to stoke the, the furnace with coal. You know, we had to do it manually back then.
0: <laughs> so you had said. So when did you leave the nest and like branch out on your own? And like, how did you know? How did early adulthood work out with trying to be a a patron of the excess?
2: Well, I started running away at the time I was 13, 14. My parents kept bringing me back. I don't know why. They should just let me go. But they had the sense of responsibility and duty that prevented them from just uh, allowing me to go on my merry way. Uh, when I turned 18, they politely asked me to go. They'd had enough of me. So uh, I, I've used uh, my skills as a salesperson to uh sustained myself and uh, waited tables for uh, a little bit of legitimacy. And I ran into a guy, before I moved out, I ran into a guy who was a stage manager of the Paramount Theater, which is a 3,000-seat theater. I'm sure everybody has one similar to it, Old Movie House. And uh, he had invited my buddy that was with me to come to uh, work at a, a show. And I went with my buddy, who was a big strapping lad. And uh, I was totally into it. I loved music. I loved, you know, seeing live shows. And uh, that kind of changed my life. I threw myself real heavily into that. Uh, worked at the Paramount. Worked at a place, a club here called the Starry Night Club that became the Roseland. That after I went out and, and got sober, went on my own path, got sober and came back and made amends, ended up running. But uh, I, that really kind of gave me a focus. You know, my life was, was untethered. And I was constantly suffering from groundhogitis. You know, I'd I'd get to the point where I was suicidal and my life was completely spun out of control. Then I'd feel like, you know, I've got it back under control. I'm going to be okay. And then I'd hit the skids again and spin out of control. I attempted suicide on several occasions. On one one particularly bad evening, I left a strip club called Mary's in downtown Portland and uh, took off. From the curb a guy had asked a homeless guy to asked me for some spare change and i told him in no uncertain terms i didn't have any spare change for him because i was just too cool for that got onto my motorcycle with my buddy on the back i popped a wheelie to show him how cool i was took off from the curb went across four lanes of traffic and slammed into a parked car on the far side so i'm sure he was pretty impressed with me the police showed up the police showed up they tried to get me to take an ambulance or refused to do it i was bleeding profusely from multiple places and and I had a hematoma on my, my neck. They thought it might be my jugular, but I refused to take the ambulance. Now, After a series of unfortunate events, the cop almost knocking himself out when that hematoma burst, and I called him, told him that he might want to call the ambulance back. He looked in his mirror, saw the blood down the front of me, uh-huh. tried to jump out of the car, slammed into his window, and fell back in. But I, my buddy, who'd been <laughs> back, his girlfriend, uh, came and got us, took me to the hospital. They stitched me up. They gave me a bunch of morphine. My very uh, kind-hearted nurse told me if I just told them how much pain I was in, they were going to help me. And so they shot me up with morphine, gave me a jar of Percocets. I went home, continued freebasing because that's what I did. You know, you would think you'd want to go home and and maybe let those stitches, the sutures kind of set and, you know, lick your wounds a little bit. But not me. You know, I'm partying. I get a knock on the door in the morning, and I'm sure it's the police because there's a phone call that follows that knock, and I know what they do. They call right after they knock. If you're not answering the door, they say, we know you're inside. Come answer the door. So uh, I took uh, evasive action. I took uh, all of my party items. I held them over the toilet, shaking, terrified, knowing what was going to happen, absolutely certain, Terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair were on me. And I finally manned up after multiple knocks, and I flushed everything down the toilet, walked out into the front room to take my medicine, you know, take it like a man. I looked out the back window. It wasn't the cops. It was the gas guy turning off the gas because I hadn't paid the bill.
0: No. So,
2: things oh. were looking pretty I went back into the bedroom, and some of the crap had gurgled back up in the shitter, so I pulled it back out, cooked it up, and, and finished my party. And then when that was gone, I knew the guy that I owed the money for was coming looking for me, You know, I knew there was nobody I could call, so I just laid down and I took that jar of Percocets. I ate the whole thing. I shoved a dresser in front of the door so nobody could get in and uh, laid down to die. I came to in five-point restraints at a local hospital. Uh, With so much pressure inside my body, I thought I was going to explode. I had an oxygen mask on. I felt certain I was going to choke to death inside that thing. They uh, got to me in time to get the mask off, just in time for me to start spewing a fire hose of black liquid out of me. They'd pump me full of charcoal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, nice stuff. I, I crapped that and, and puked that for the next couple of days. They sent me up to a psych ward and locked me in and, and uh, told me I needed to participate in what they were doing, but I didn't have a problem. So, you know, it wasn't like I needed to do anything to address it. And uh, they came and asked me to come out of the room. I said, look, I don't need to make moccasins. I'm not into weaving baskets. Whatever you have to offer, I don't want it. I don't need it. So they paid my bill for me, and they let me go, and uh, I threw myself into to my work, thinking maybe I could uh, take some evasive action and solve the problems. Moved out of the house where I borrowed the money from my roommate to uh, subsidize my drug dealing, and I'd wrecked his motorcycle in that accident coming out of Mary's. I wrecked his 57 Chevy pickup uh, with the same guy that was on the back of the bike in the passenger seat with me you know, a couple months before, so obviously that place was my problem, plus I didn't want to face the fact that, you know, I destroyed both his vehicles and taken his money, so I moved out promptly into a roach-infested apartment where they uh, cut, it was a lapidary that was working underneath us, and they used diesel as a lubricant to cut rocks, and it would grind all day and all night, and the place would stink like diesel, and when you turn Mm. the light and was dark, there'd be roaches everywhere. So that was my big move. And the guy that I moved in with was a free bass addict who was smoking coke all the time. So uh, I'm pretty much a genius when it comes to directing my life.
0: Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah.
2: the one thing that I did do is I threw myself into working with bands and thought if I could just attain some success there that everything would be okay. I started touring. I started working with a local band called New Shoes. And then I started touring with uh, them. Then I transferred to bands out in New York. Went out with a big rap tour in '87. Uh, went out on multiple tours back to back until I got sober in 1989. 1210 of '89 is my sobriety date, and uh, I surrendered in the back of a truck I'd driven from New York City to Detroit, Michigan, and uh, I'd gotten completely out of my mind, paranoid. You know that night that that I attempted suicide. I'd been up all night. I'd been up for probably a day and a half smoking coke and. I, for exercise, do carpet safari, searching through the carpet fibers, trying to find something to smoke. And then, you know, just to stretch, I'd, I'd reach up and I'd pull the, the curtains open and peek out the windows all night long just to keep myself limber. <laughs> you know? Psychosis yeah. was on, going from New York to Detroit. And by the time I got to Detroit, I was sure that there were people coming in through the back of the truck. I knew they were coming to get me. and driving around, shaking the truck from side to side, trying to get people off of it. I got to the hotel and, and parked and and was completely insane, completely insane. And I tried to pee back into the bottles that I had emptied on my way to Detroit and uh didn't work. Something about the air pressure or something. And I ended up with piss all over the floor and you know, the insanity was so intense, I just I got down on my knees and my own urine. And I said, God, if there's a hell on earth I'm in it, just please show me a way out. And when I got to the end of that tour, I went to look for some help.
0: Where so where did you did you know where to look even?
2: No. And, you know, the Internet was kind of a new thing back then. So I just started tapping resources. I went out and interviewed all the outpatients that I could find. Uh, the outpatient operators would tell me, you know, you'll probably be fine. You seem motivated. You seem dedicated. And uh, that's I was really, motivated.
0: In 89, that's kind of the genesis of, like, the the well, the early modern treatment industry in the first place, right?
2: You know, I don't know the history of treatment. I should because I'm now kind of loosely a part of that. But um, there weren't a ton of options. But I had a friend who had uh, gone through treatment at a place that's now defunct here. So I took a a drive down to Eugene where he was performing to ask him how he got sober. But we stopped off and picked up a six-pack of beer, which turned into more beer, which turned into cocaine, which turned into me being catatonic by the time I saw him not being able to form words. I couldn't even ask him how he'd gotten sober. So that was my big attempt. So I asked my parents if I could move in with them for a minute, which ended up being like four years. Uh, At 27 years of age, I went up there. I started interviewing people. You know, there weren't a lot of options. I called a buddy of mine, told him that if this is sobriety, I don't want it. It was too painful. 30 days in with no alcohol, no drugs. I had no coping mechanisms. The, The insanity that was between my ears was, you know, what is... There's a quote, uh, the monkey may be off your back, but the circus is still in town. Oh, yeah. You know, they, the chatter of a thousand monkeys was was on me and I couldn't break it and I didn't know what to do. So I called up a buddy and coincidentally, they sent me to a treatment center in Yakima, Washington, a place called Sundown Am Ranch. And Sundown gave me an introduction to the steps. They told me about Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd only been to one 12-step meeting prior to that. I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I thought I was a freebase addict. I didn't, I didn't understand anything about what it was going to take for me to get, to get clean, get sober. I had no clue. I just knew that they told me to go to a lot of meetings and to get a sponsor. I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous when I got out of treatment. I ran into a guy by the name of Taylor Haynes. Uh, he got up to speak right when they called. He got up to go to the bathroom right as they called on him to speak and uh, he told them that he was going to go use the restroom. He'd be back in a minute and if they wanted him to, he'd share then. And there was just something about the way he carried himself. He had a quiet confidence that uh, a lot that let me know that there was something different about him. So I went up to him. I manned up and, and uh, swallowed my pride and did something I don't do. I walked up to that man. I asked him for help. I said, excuse me, sir. I'd like to ask you to be my sponsor. He took one look at me and said, yeah, I appreciate that offer, but I'm really not interested.
1: I'm, very-
2: <laughs> I'm really busy with the guys. I travel a lot. I wouldn't be able to give you what you need. I said, you don't understand, sir. And he said, no, no, I do. How about Tom, Jim, Fred tried to introduce me to all these people, and they were looking over at me like, you know, doe-eyed deer, you know, I'm like, what? what's Taylor trying to do? And I said, no, sir, you don't understand. I'm asking you to be my sponsor. And he said, well, I, I'm really busy, but I'll tell you what. You come by my house. Here's my address. Come by on Wednesday, and we'll talk. So I showed up on Wednesday, knocked on his door. He opened it up said, well, you did make it. Okay, well, come on in, but don't touch anything, and don't talk to my wife, which <laughs> given the circumstances, like pretty reasonable requests. He took me in the back room, but instead of telling me that I was a piece of crap, oh, I forgot to mention this. In treatment, they told me that I was a poly drug user from an early age displaying sociopathic tendencies and that people like me didn't get sober. I might as well not even bother trying, yeah. which I thought was, was pretty good advice. And they didn't tell me I could go somewhere else. They didn't tell me there was a program for poly drug using sociopaths. They just thought I might want that information. I went back after 29 years to, to talk to them about my new project. And uh, I figured, you know, at this point, I'm probably healthy enough to go back and, and, uh, and tell them they were wrong.
0: Yeah, I'd say so.
2: Anyway, Taylor didn't tell me that I was a poly anything. He didn't tell me I didn't have any hope. He told me instead about himself. He told me about living in bushes, not being able to crap solid, having wine stores that wouldn't heal, and told me that if, if I did what he had done, that I was going to be able to have any kind of life that I wanted. I could live anywhere I wanted to live, drive anything I wanted to drive, date anybody I wanted to date. I would only be limited by the amount of work that I was willing to do. And uh, he gave me hope for the first time in a long time. You know, I couldn't see a future for myself. I couldn't see there being any possibility of anything worth having. I thought suicide was probably the only option, even though I was sober. And that man instilled in me a spark that I, I could never have imagined having. And what he did walking me through the steps was provide me with not giving me back my old life, but provided me a life that was unimaginable. I could never have conceived of what transpired and, uh, he saved
0: me. And, and so that's the namesake then I take it. Correct. Yeah. yeah Taylor, so I, Taylor. I guess that's, that's a, uh, that's a good little transition. So how that, what, uh, what became of him, and, and how did, uh, how did that inspire what you're doing now?
2: He sponsored a ton of guys. He lived in an area outside of Seattle called Maple Valley, and he sponsored a ton of guys. And the home group that I attended, uh, all those guys are still sober. I'm still in contact with them. And I always wanted to do something to give back to him. You know, my career came back tenfold what it had been. You know, I've been given an opportunity to do some pretty amazing things. And, you know, I've always tried to keep, I actually haven't always tried to keep Ever since 15 years sober, when I almost attempted suicide in sobriety, I've kept this as the number one thing. You know, I let it slip away. Hmm?
0: And and I'm going to stop you there for a second, because I think it's uh, definitely um, worth talking about. So how did you get to a place being sober 15 years where you wanted to kill yourself?
2: I was so focused on the gifts that I'd been given. I was the executive producer of a uh, big tour. I was... uh, I was in litigation with the guy that had hired me back to run the Roseland Theater. I had so many things going on. I was I had so many irons in the fire. I was so busy being a big shot. I was so busy uh, being an important guy that you know the importance of of the twelve steps and of Alcoholics Anonymous and staying engaged and the things that had cleared my mind enough to give me the opportunity to have that life became unimportant, or at mm-hmm. least less important. And yeah. as that Go ahead. as that focus shifted, you know, my disease set back in.
0: How like how serious how close did you get?
2: Within a whisker. I hadn't slept for multiple days. Uh, I had not eaten for multiple days. I wasn't drinking in water. I literally was so spun up in my head. It was every bit as bad as it had been when I was out there drinking and using. Uh, I literally I called Taylor and told him what was going on. Uh, He'd always been able to walk me off the cliff ever since that first day. He was able to see through uh, anything that was going on with me and see what the real deal was and help me to see it. Uh, This time I was too far gone, and I hung up on him, told him I know what I have to do. I knew that I'd ruined everything, that everybody would be better off without me, and it was just time for me to go. So I drove off out into the gorge, out of a beautiful highway, through beautiful scenery to find a wall that I could hit from the road, hard enough that, that it would take my life. I wouldn't end up you know, quadriplegic and, uh, having to suffer through what was going on in my head. Uh, I drove past my wife, past my daughter in a brand new car to go take my own life, making tons of money, you know, all the trappings of a real life and nothing mattered.
0: What stopped you?
2: I got a call from a friend, another guy that had been sponsored by Taylor named Rick, Rick Johnson. And, uh, Whatever he had said, he said he told me that he loved me. he told me that I reminded him of Taylor and and I was the only guy that he'd met that reminded him of Taylor and and that whatever it was, it was gonna be okay. I just needed to turn around and and uh, walk through it and it would all be all right. And for whatever reason that got through. you know I'd ignored other calls, the police had been called. You know, but he got through, and and you know was able to to pierce the darkness and and help me to to sense a little bit of hope and a little bit of light, and got me to turn around and go back home. Wow,
0: well, thank God for that. So, all right, and then so picking back up, um, uh, before I inter- <laughs> interrupted you with that one, um, so what what was going on uh, in the years pr- uh, past that, um
2: one thing just a comment about that and you can edit this in or out as you see fit
0: but i think it's important
2: that people know and talk about the fact that just because you're sober things aren't solved it's really yeah. easy to let up on that the spiritual kit of tools and and rest on our laurels and if we're not doing that spiritual maintenance if we're not doing if i'm not doing if i'm not getting that daily reprieve i'm screwed drunk or sober and uh i think it's easy to forget that you know it's easy to get wrapped up in life and maybe for some people that, that are not seriously afflicted, afflicted or as seriously afflicted, you know, maybe it's okay just to get physically sober and, and go on with life. But for guys like me that, that suffer the way that I suffered, you know, it's uh, not viable without doing that daily maintenance.
0: No, absolutely. Are, do you, um, have you ever uh, been like diagnosed any kind of mental illness, depression, and anxiety? Did you ever do any medication for that?
1: They
2: did diagnose me at the time, and they diagnosed me as bipolar and multiple other things. They put me on Seroquel. They put me on a bunch of antipsychotics at 15 years of sobriety, and uh, it was short-lived. I got connected with the program and threw myself back into uh, doing the work and took myself off of all the medications, and it's been 14 years since then with uh, no reoccurrence.
0: Yeah, good. Yeah, I'm uh I've I go back and forth with, with the medications I'm currently on, but it was kind of the same thing. It's I I realized that just quite simply, uh, for whatever reason I am suicidal by nature almost and um it's almost like irresponsible for me to kind of just try to muscle through that sometimes. So I've finally just kind of I guess you could even worked the you know, the fact that I'm powerless over certain parts of my mental illness, so very good, um, yeah, so what uh, I,
2: don't have, I don't have an opinion about uh, what other people should do, but when it was called for for me to do medication, you know, I followed the doctor's direction, so yeah, and oh, yeah. It, when it was no longer necessary, that was the
0: end of that yep, precisely um yeah, so what uh so I guess it was kind of you entered a new phase of of your life after that, um, diving back in.
2: I wrote a letter to my employer. I was, you know, big shot executive producer, but I had three bosses. And one of them I felt was treating me inappropriately. So I sent her a letter that she shared with the other two partners, one of which was in recovery, the guy that had hired me. And instead of calling me up and telling me, you know what, you're a piece of crap, you're an a-hole for writing this letter, which would have been true statements. He said, you know, this looks an awful lot like untreated alcoholism. At that point, I was trying to muscle my way through. I was trying to to force, you know, my will to try and get everything to work out. And you know, I was having a modicum of success, but the internal peace wasn't really there. And he, uh, when he called me out, I thought, you know, maybe you're right. So I flew in to meet with him, and we started getting into the book and and uh, doing the readings. And he started taking me out to meetings. I met a bunch of great guys in the fellowship, and I started craving what I'd had when I first got sober which was that connection with the other people in the fellowship around me. And uh, I went back up to Portland. I went and met with a guy who gave me the name of, of a, a, a guy that was really sincerely into the principles of the program. I got, I got connected with him. I got connected with uh, solution-based meetings. I started sponsoring guys and really have never looked back. I mean, since then, I've sponsored, at any given time, i sponsored probably 12 to 16 guys. Uh, I Started a convention, a AA convention in Portland. Uh, I started building out H&I stuff to take meetings into facilities where there were no meetings. I've really kind of dedicated myself to being of service, all the while continuing to, to own my own company. And I produce concerts all over the country and uh, just kind of have always been looking for the next step of being of service to God and to the people around me. And uh, I went, uh, I had a guy, a manager of a band's son fly out to do the steps with me. We got to step three. I dropped him off at a sober house. And uh, this is not an indictment of sober houses. It's just the experience that that took place in this instance. But I dropped him off, and the people there were not particularly sober, were not really practicing principles. Most of them weren't going to meetings and didn't have sponsors and weren't doing the work. And uh, he relapsed almost immediately. And Mm -hmm. I had some ego invested in that. I had some ego invested in, in the claims I'd made to his father you know, I was probably in a bit of a swinging dick and send him out here and, you know, we'll get him we'll get him whipped into shape. And uh, I really was embarrassed by both my behavior and, and being cocky and in the way things went went down. He got tra- kicked out of that sober house, moved around, got taken advantage of by an outpatient, unscrupulous outpatient uh, clinic and another sober house. And I just thought there's got to be a better way to do this. And so I started looking around. I met with everybody I could find, and, and uh, I flew out to I – I did a retreat in, in Nashville, Tennessee, and went and visited a couple treatment centers there just coincidentally doing h stuff on panels, and then uh, flew up to YZ, Minnesota to go meet with some people that I'd heard were really active in the steps as well as recovery, which wasn't my experience here. People were not working the steps. It was, you know, everything but the steps. They couldn't do anything that wasn't, because of their funding base, they couldn't do anything that wasn't evidence-based, and the steps were spiritual and related to God, and, and that wasn't something that they could do, so I went to go find how, out how these guys had been doing what they were doing. I looked at what they were, were uh, presenting and how they were operating I was blown away, and I wanted to replicate that and... You know, that same guy that had called me out and told me that I I was suffering from untreated alcoholism, I went to him to talk to him about, you know, potentially becoming a, a part of this project. And he was incredulous about the fact that not only did he think that that was something he did not want to be involved in on any level, he felt that that was something I shouldn't be involved in. He didn't think that anything financial should be mixed with spiritual and that I needed to not do it. So I took about a year off and prayed about it and thought about it, and I came to the conclusion. You know what? I value his opinion, but I feel like I'm in a place where I can do this. I'd asked him, "Don't you think there might be somebody that could walk the line between spiritual and financial?" He said, "I don't know, maybe, but are you that guy?" And that he he really challenged me with that. And I spent time thinking about whether I was, and decided that yeah, I am. And uh, the minute I picked up the phone, it was literally one phone call. I found the 6,500 square foot mansion was built by a bootlegger back in 1933. You know, all the the people that were needed to restore the place and remodel it and decorate it fell into my lap. And uh, within 33 days, we had bought this place, uh, flipped it to a beautiful, beautiful setting. Uh, We've got a four and a half acre yard, quote unquote, that now has paths that bisect it, travel all the way around it. We've got a creek called Messenger Creek, which I equate to carrying the message here. Uh, that goes all the way around the perimeter of the property, and uh, you can go online to tailormaderetreat.org dot org and take a virtual tour inside or outside of the the facility. And it's really it's mind blowing what what God did here, you know, and uh, what was provided.
0: And, and so, what do y'all do up there? It's a twelve step immersion program.
2: What we do is we bring guys in. Right now, it's men only, but we bring folks in here and we give them a deep dive into the twelve steps. We have. Uh, A guy right now, I mean, in the other room, there's a guy presenting the big book. He spends two hours a day, three days a week. We've got two other presenters. All of these guys are CADCs that have been doing this stuff professionally for years. They're retired, and they just want to give back. They want to see what we're doing take hold. We have members of 12-Step Fellowships come in. We have a big, huge fireplace. If you go on the virtual tour at org, you can see the fireplace. We do a fireside chat every day from 1 to 2. We have... People that come in and do spiritual practices. We have a meditation leader that started Refuge Recovery that comes in and does meditation with the guys once a week. We have an 80-year-old gal, Patty Louie, that comes in. She had a meditation facility in Hawaii for years. She comes in and does meditation. We have yoga three times a week. We have Pilates once a week. We have uh, people that come in and give spiritual talks. Maddie, your friend, comes in and does Reiki on Sundays. Uh, We take guys out to meetings every day. You know, it's just basically an immersion. If if you were to take, you know, my 28 years when I started this of sobriety and compress all the experiences that have been of value to me, uh, we've tried to present all of that and then some uh, in the, the implementation of this program. And it's an exact duplicate of what the retreat in YZ has been doing successfully for 20 years it's outside of the the medical community it's not covered by insurance it's simply an attempt on our part to provide an environment for and facilitate a spiritual awakening for the people that come in here
0: and is it do you mainly get people that are trying to get sober or do you get people that have had you know 15 5 10 15 years and they just need a little recharge or a new experience
2: you know we would be open to having people come in that wanted a recharger or a new experience wanted to come in and focus on a four-step. But so far, everybody that's come through has been people that are new in recovery. We've had a couple guys that are that had to kick Suboxone to get in here and, and had a real tough time doing that, but have done incredible, incredible work since. We've had straight alcoholics. We've had straight drug addicts. We had a guy that we took right out of the hospital. He died from an overdose, had to be Narcan three times to be brought back. Uh, and he's been with us now for several weeks and uh, is doing amazing work. And the goal here is to provide these guys with this design for living, not only the implementation of the steps, but they're leaving here with a sponsor, they're leaving here making amends, they're leaving here knowing a network of meetings and having you know, a phone full of people to call. And our goal is to give them the foundation that's going to provide them long-term recovery.
0: That's awesome. Well, uh, one more time, tell everyone where they can uh, get more information.
2: They can call me on my cell phone. That number is 360-433-1040. They can go to tailormaderetreat.org. They can take a virtual tour of the facility. They can see the program that we operate. Uh, And they can also go to the retreat in Wise Out of Minnesota and see what they do there because we've replicated what they've done, and uh, they have a long history of great success with this
0: awesome well Lowell, thanks for taking the time to uh tell your story man and uh hopefully if i ever get up to visit debesh and maddie i can meet you in person i'd love that
2: dude come out here you would actually fall in love with this place maddie did
0: oh i'm sure i'm sure all right Lowell, we'll have a great rest of the day man thank you brother thanks for getting me up and going
2: and i'm
1: still young and i'm sleeping now though Sunday So good. What did you think? I was just blown away. It's captivating, enthralling. I was enthralled. Were you almost as much as seeing Adam Levine's nipples? Close, close second to
0: he, that. So it was like. So have have you gotten to the point with your kids where, when like sexually provocative things come on, you like feel weird
1: watching it with them? Yeah, maybe yeah i think so what's been so funny is my kai now loves uh parks and rec which is incredible in and of itself
0: D- really but
1: how old is he, he seven wow. he thinks it's so well they make fart jokes so like jerry had a heart attack and he kept and he farted, farting the yeah. whole time <laughs> and and uh what's his name he's trying to get the doctor to say that it was a fart attack instead of a heart attack (laughs) and Kai about peed himself laughing so hard. So ever since then, he's been a big parks and rec fan, but there's like obvious like tons of sexual uh, inferences and stuff. So that's been a little weird. I just look over at him and he doesn't get it. And so I just let it go. But um, that's That's been a little weird. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But like, have there been like, like any, like, like boobies on screen that caught you off guard, and you have to be like, "Oh,"
1: um, or how are no. you gonna handle it? I don't think I'd be worried about boobs on screen. I just don't. I and uh, that might be it. Might be the worst parent in America. What? But like, would I just don't think it'd be what would embarrass you, or I guess that's, I, mean, I guess that's like the right pretty word. pretty. What would I think would be inappropriate that would make me feel a little bit awkward? Yes. Would be like some pretty graphic sexual it'd have to be pretty graphic sexual content okay um
0: so you so soft core is okay for your seven-year-old but <laughs> <laughs> i just want to get that on record that you're okay with soft as core. long
1: as there's no pnv on screen i think we're good that's what i'm saying yeah that's such a well no i mean I, there's a line you know of course there, there's just um, – I think it's nuanced, and I, it just depends. It'll
0: probably be I one think. of those you'll know it when it happens.
1: Totally. And also I think it depends on, like, how how tired I am and how much I care in that given moment. Because <laughs> that's a real thing that they don't tell you about adulthood. It's like sometimes you just like, let shit go because I'm too tired to do anything. Totally.
0: Uh, yeah. Has he started asking for a phone yet, either of
1: them? no well kind of not really his friends don't have phones but he did just get my old macbook so he's been he's been learning what iMessage is and iMessaging everyone so like he (laughs) (laughs) and it's all i'll send you a screenshot and it's all um just like ha ha ha's and like duck emojis and but he figured out how to drag and drop gifts, so when his mom sends him gifts, he'll like send them to me and stuff. So it's wow, it's been really incredible watch watching him learn how to text, and I'll text him something, and he'll be in this in the other room playing a computer game or whatever, and he'll just like guttural belly laugh, thinking that's like so strange. It's so funny, yeah.
0: I guess that's how old. I guess that was hmm. I mean, I started farting around on a computer. I guess around that age, yeah, El- elementary totally. school. But I guess the whole the mess. It's just it's gonna be very interesting. I still think that if they're like, because he'll, I guess his is really the most immersed generation, or you know, more immersed than like the kids that are teenagers right now. Where like, sure, they might even it might go back to like wanting to do analog things because it's mm,
1: different. maybe. I don't know, Maybe he's really not. into the know. PlayStation I just bought. So Oh
0: yeah? Can he play it? That.
1: Like is he good? Yeah, I got him Marvel like this Lego Marvel game. And he's crushing it, he's killing it. He needs my help sometimes, but he's totally killing you, you
0: it. You need to let him hop on Call of Duty and get that boy a thick skin.
1: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> he's no. gonna
0: find out what? all the people no. that have had sex with his mom. I know.
1: <laughs> I'm so much more worried about that than yeah, like, the, totally. than the games themselves well, for sure. Which,
0: they've I guess it's, I was gonna say it's a bad thing, but they've really cracked down on that. You can't like that was part of the hilarity. I mean, the the funniest part of of growing up playing like online gaming is just like the ridiculous insults people <laughs> <make it>. ridiculous. <laughs> And you'd yeah. hear it from the voice of a child, too. So they be like, I'm going to fuck you up, man. It's just like. So funny. So funny. But it's now, so funny. Now they'd be banning people and stuff for that. I know. My buddy
1: Andrew got temporary. He listened to the shout out, Andrew. Got temporarily banned. What did he say? For saying some really graphic things to a 14 year old, apparently. Oh. Uh, because this kid was being an asshole and he just like went full, um, you know.
0: He went ham on Not
1: yeah. PC. Yeah. 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 nice dude that's on a so, butt
0: you know hey don't dish it out
1: you can't take it don't hug the bear dog yeah, yeah i'm saying yeah
0: there's a really funny uh youtube video it's like a famous troll video where this this guy it's, they're playing halo and he his main insult is that he's like i'm gonna cover there come over there i'm gonna suck your toes and, <laughs> and, but he goes he, he just keeps he's like real talk real talk man i'm gonna suck your toes <laughs> it's, it's it's so good. I highly recommend That's it.
1: That's Really funny. That's super duper funny. Uh,
0: you want a you want a good today? I learned. I got yeah. two of them.
1: Today I learned. Today, today,
0: I, today I learned, I learned. We up, the people we Where's love. You at? Uh, so the Battle of Pelusium. You ever heard of it? Okay. No. All right. Uh, what was it? So it's a. It's a battle between uh, (laughs) the Pharaoh of Egypt and Cambyses II of Persia, okay? And it Uh, was probably the first recorded instance of psychological warfare. You want to know what they did?
1: I want to come back to the phrase psychological warfare. Just remind me on that after this. But, well, yeah, what's that? What did they do? Okay, all
0: right. Uh, So Egyptians... held cats in high high esteem. They were sacred animals to them. They were guards. So, Cambyses the second had his men carry Okay, Sorry. uh John got cut off. What was the last thing you heard?
1: Uh you're cutting in and out. Let's just start over.
0: Okay. So, <laughs> the people already heard this, but um so cats are <laughs> sacred animals to the Egyptians uh-huh. so yep. Cambyses the second ordered his soldiers to carry cats in front of them when they were attacking and the Egyptian archers would not shoot their arrows because they were afraid of wounding the animals so they they were able to storm Pelusium successfully
1: Brilliant Isn't that funny? It's brilliant. Ah. No, it's brilliant. That's what like Saddam Hussein used to do with children. But that's great.
0: Wow. Thanks. thanks appreciate it dude sorry Uh, so
1: dude all right psychological warfare ready so um i was in jail when i was 18 years old in this little podunk jail in utah right i got possession of cocaine and like a bunch of misdemeanors in a sitting it was awesome but i was stuck in this jail until i could get bailed out and um so they put me in general pop and there's this dude with no teeth also, that's where, so, and they were teaching me how to play spades, uh-huh. right? Shocker, that's where I learned how to play spades. <laughs> Everyone learns how to play spades in jail. Absolutely. And so we were playing spades like hours of just playing spades and watching cops because that's what they all wanted to watch <laughs> in jail.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. Soap
1: operas. 'Cause they'd yell at them like, This motherfucker's stupid. I'm like, Are yeah. you in jail? You're me. in jail. You're stupid. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but they he kept talking about and his whole th- <laughs> I'll never forget his face. Looking across the tail f- table from him, he'd put he'd put something down and be like, That is psychological warfare <laughs> with no with a mouthful of like no teeth is just incredible. And was so
0: he anyway. and was he not in, like I like when people state something that is not what they're doing. It's, it's, it's like <laughs> it's, it's like they beat you in arm wrestling and they're like, "Yeah, psychological warfare." It's like, "What, dude?"
1: Like, no. I don't think you know what, I I don't think that means what you think it means.
0: I used to do that purposely. Be like, "Well, see, let me if like if I was doing a math problem be like, "Well, let me check my geography and see if it's correct." <laughs> You're funny. Whatever, dude. I thought it was funny. Anyway, another one. So, <laughs> um, so you know in cartoons how liquor bottles have the tri- triple X's on them? Yeah. Why do you think that is?
1: Because uh, they only used to sell them at porn shops. Good guess. Nope. Is that close? No. Nope.
0: Mm, okay. No, it's not.
1: Damn uh, it. So...
0: Good moonshine had to be distilled three times, so each X is a dist- uh, distillation. They would mark the bottles. Yeah,
1: isn't that cool? That's really cool. Yeah,
0: that was actually a fun one. I was like, "Oh, that's very interesting." So yeah, that's super interesting. Three distillations for word G. Yeah, um, good stuff, man. Well, uh, yeah, come back on next week. All right, do
1: it. I'll come back on next week.
0: Um. I'll be doing a coming up. Let's see, uh, doing a or try to do a live or recording. Going to a, a convention, and I'm gonna be living in a house with a AJ. Um, who I'm gonna maybe I get him to tell his yeet, story. Yeet, yeet. Yeah, so that'll be fun. Um, yeah, good stuff. That's it. Cool, All right, man. Fun. Send us an email IG. at drugs at gmail dot uh patreon.com backslash church and other drugs this week i have my story oh yeah i was also on the system is down podcast with dan smots and um told my story and then the bonus episode i have was where i talked to him about uh microdosing dextromethorphan so that one was pretty
1: interesting that's i want to listen to that now you
0: should it was actually it it was very i've it, it's. I've never heard of that, and I'm. You know, I am not Yeah. So listen right. to it, Patreon.
1: All right. Word up. Peace. Peace.